This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. In this episode, I interview Phil Bright. Phil is a Geographic Information Systems Specialist at the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, a technical assistance organization covering the island nations of the South Pacific. Phil's work focuses on supporting census activities and includes capacity building, planning, implementing, and analyzing census data. Prior to working at SPC, he was a research assistant at Curtin University of Technology in Australia. I connected with Phil for this interview at his office in Numia, New Caledonia. Phil, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time and that uh, you know, you've, you've taken time out of your work day uh, out there in the Pacific to, to speak with us. First, I want to I start off by asking you, can you explain what it is you do for the Secretary of the Pacific Community? What's, what's your role um, and what do you do every day? No problem. Steve, thanks for having me. Um, my title is, is GIS Specialist. That's a GI, Geographic Information System Specialist. Uh, and I'm, I sort of specialise in the census and survey aspect of our work. Um, and I work for the Statistics for Development Division here at the Secretariat of the Pacific Community. Now, we're, we're a, a technical development agency, non-profit agency, um, kind of a, you know, a small version of the UN uh, in that we provide technical assistance to our 22 member countries. Now, being in the Statistics for Development division means that a lot of our work concentrates around census and survey work uh, for populations in the Pacific. I have a fair bit of my work cut out uh, around censuses, particularly censuses, and although the the 2010 round of censuses for us has, has currently finished and doesn't start up again until next year, for the last probably six or so years, I've, I've spent a fair bit of my time assisting countries with planning for their censuses, doing a lot of the field work, the, the data, data entry, so data capture, as well as then um, processing that data and, and getting it into a, a form that people can digest. So, you know, day to day I'm, I'm working on, on fixing up maps so that people in the field know where they're going, cleaning up data, uh, as many of us have to do as much as we don't necessarily like it. Uh, I'm working very closely with counterparts in country uh, via Skype, uh, email, telephone, uh, whatever it may be. I, I have close contact with my, my counterparts. And so uh, every day is, you know, can be quite varied. It's often been sitting behind a machine when I'm based in Numia. When I'm in, in country, I can sometimes be out in the field testing GPS units or showing people how to read maps or in a, in a data processing office uh, helping people to run a, a scanner to automate their data entry. So unfortunately you know, it's, it's quite varied. Thanks. Can you dive into that just a little bit deeper? I, you know, I feel like most people who will be listening to this have never taken part in a census. Um, they've, you know, they've probably, other than maybe a census in their own country where they've been a, you know, tasked with filling out a form or you know, being counted. What's a planning cycle like? How, how long does it take to plan a census in one of these communities, uh, one of these islands that you work on? How long we should be planning for a census and how long we actually end up spending planning, uh, uh, unfortunately, two different, very different things. Um, <laughs> ideally, we would basically start planning for a follow-up census as soon as the previous one finishes. Now, half of, of the countries in the region are on five-year cycles and the other half are on ten-year cycles. Certainly those that are doing it every five years ideally on the sixth year should be preparing for then the next one. Unfortunately, we're talking about offices that range from sometimes one or two people up to an office that could be more than 100 that don't necessarily have the, the capacity and the resources to be full-time working on a census. 
And so uh, even before the census finishes, they're often working on other surveys or, or you know, ministry databases or, or various things that their ministers may be asking them to do. And so it, it's often very difficult to even get people to concentrate on, on the task of completing their census, let alone preparing for the next one. So I guess to answer your question, most of the time we're, we're trying to look at least 12 months in advance and that really then becomes sort of critical um, because when resources and, and particularly funds from donors have got to be raised and you've got to plan a questionnaire, you've got to plan field work, you have to train people, we need at least a year, and ideally two years. Tell me about the preparation of even something, what, what somebody probably from the outside would think of the preparation of the census form. Is the census form the same every time you do it over five years? I mean, are they, are they basically asking the same questions, or is that form updated? Is it a really dynamic process? Is that part of the work? Our 22 member countries in the region, are, you know, obviously all have their own national priorities and, and objectives and so forth, and, and so there, there often can be varying, you know, questions that are being asked across countries. And this in itself, you know, poses sort of complexities for us because it means that if we're trying to have a standardised way of providing a service or providing assistance, it'd be nice if every country is doing things the same way, uh, asking questions that you know are comparable and, and things like this. What we're trying to do more and more is to put model questions in, in a census and to say, look, you know, there's, there are 20 core questions that you really need to be asking and this is the way they should be asked. They're tried and tested. If you ask them this way, we also then have all of the, the ways in which we can process that data that's been tried and tested and we don't have to redesign it from scratch. And we're sort of trying to put more and more pressure on countries to do it this way because it also means they will get the best results out of their data. Some, some questions, certainly ambiguous questions, can end up with almost useless results. You know, something countries often like, for example, are questions on disabilities because they like to, to know, you know, they like to be able to plan for various disabilities in, in, in their local population. The problem is, is if you ask someone if they have a disability, they're going to give many different answers. Unless you're structuring that in a particular way and, and saying, you know, do you struggle to, to walk upstairs? In which case, you're actually handicapped as far as movement's concerned, or do you struggle to, to read a newspaper or, or because of your eyesight or, or something like this? It allows us to, to actually get something out of the, the questions that are being asked. And so the, the actual structure of, or the ways in which the questions are being asked and the types of questions that are being asked are becoming more and more standardised. And then we have a, you know, a sort of a, a fairly model layout that we have for those forms, particularly those that are being scanned in so being captured automatically, we like to try and keep them fairly standard because then it means that we don't have to redesign the whole data capture system. But of course, all these countries, you know, they, they like to put their own little flavour to these things, and so we, we we sometimes struggle to get them to do things exactly like you know in that kind of structure. But um, that's, I guess, part of the challenge that we have. And then from year to year, ideally, keep questions. Uh, the same because it then means that we can compare over time um, possibly adding in new questions and you know for example well now we're looking at climate change issues more and more in the region so there can be questions that are, that are thrown and that's uh, in that regard so that we can uh, have a way of being able to possibly measure in the local communities how they're seeing uh, climate change taking place so uh, hopefully that's answered your question yeah that, that's that's fantastic so take me to the next part I, I, I see a couple of different threads that I think are really interesting here First of all, so what we've talked about so far is the type of data that you want to collect and, you know, you go out and you collect it on these forms. How, but you told us that at the beginning, you know, you're, 
your job title is a GIS specialist. How does how does you know GIS? How does um, geographic information systems, computers? How do they tie into census and you know, creating maps, etc.? How, how does this all come together uh, in your office? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question, and, and we're actually finding as technology progresses over time, we have more and more tools that actually enable us to have better field control, for example. You know, something is, uh, that we take for granted in, in um, countries like where I come from, Australia, or, or you from the United States, is that we have a, a standard sort of street addressing system. And so you live at, you know, 33 Bob Street, and you then put that on your census questionnaire, and we, we know where you live. We have a, a series of sort of cadastral layers that are maintained by a lands department that we can then match up the lot that your that, you know your your house lot with your your census questionnaire, and we know exactly that you've been enumerated. Uh, and the person next door, if they don't have a questionnaire, they'll miss and, and things like this. Um, unfortunately, in the Pacific, we don't have addresses, and so what we've found is is we've been able to actually use GPS to really assist us in this regard. And we'll go into the fields most of the time, you know, sort of 12 months before the census when all the planning is taking place. And we'll do what's called a, a household listing. And this is where we're, we're going to the household and, and we're talking you know, to the head of the household, if we can, to find out roughly how many people live in the house. So we can get an idea of, you know, the numbers of, of people that are living in, in a village that we're going to go, have to go back to and enumerate, you know, 12 months later. And we also take a GPS location. And so this is, a, I guess, a preliminary database that gives us a rough idea of how many people there are, the number of households, and it allows us to then plan for the workloads for our enumerators. So these are the people going to the field uh, with the census questionnaires um, so that we're not giving one enumerator too much work so that it takes them too long to complete it and we're not giving someone else uh, not enough work. But it also means because we now have kind of a, a proxy address system, that we can then, so we provide a, you know, a, a, a GPS code, an ID number, uh, you know, a six-digit number, but then we attach to that point on a map. And if you imagine, you know, looking at a, a Google Earth or something like this and, and you've seen a satellite image of, of where you live and things like this, if you imagine then putting a, a, a dot, uh, a little red dot on your house with a six-digit number, that's your then your GPS address. So we then combine that with satellite imagery which pretty much covers the whole Pacific now um, and is fairly recent, which has really made things easier for us. And we produce maps for the enumerators that we give them to take to the field. With these maps, it makes it much, much easier for them to find where they're going. Uh, in the past, it were, they were sketch maps. And so people would go into the field and do that. Same household listing exercise 12 months before a census and they scribbled on a piece of paper roughly what the area looked like. And every single person had a different way of interpreting that map. And they would miss households and all sorts of things like this. And so the nice thing with using satellite imagery and GPS is that we can see straight away, even during the listing exercise, if the GPS operator has missed households. Uh, and it may be because it was an empty building and, in fact, no one was living there. But at least we've been able to, to raise that issue and, and double-check. Or, of course, it's because there are areas have been missed. And so with those maps, our enumerators that have been in the field have a, a nice, you know, bird's-eye view of the area that they have to cover, and they have the GPS codes uh, corresponding to the houses. And so when they then go and fill in their questionnaire, they 
type in, you know, they put in various details of the head of the household and, and so forth, which is, of course, data that is, is confidential, and so this actually gets removed later on when we're processing data. But we also can add a GPS ID, which then means, like we would do in, in, in slightly more developed countries, we would be able to match that up, the questionnaire, with the, the GPS location and determine if questionnaires have gone missing, which we've had in the past with a, you know, a boat that's sunk with a bunch of questionnaires on it coming back from an island and we weren't exactly sure which ones went missing. Now we do because we can look at a map where we have all of our GPS points coloured in whether or not, uh, depending on whether or not they have any uh, questionnaires attached to them. And so all the red dots mean we have a questionnaire and all the yellow dots means that they're missing. Uh, and we can send people back to the field so that they can double-check what happened if necessary, and if it's uh, at a later stage in the census or an area that's very hard to access, we can look at uh, possibly imputing some of that, that information, but at least we know exactly the number of households that we're dealing with. And so this, this technology is, is, is making it, well, very, very different for us in the Pacific when it comes to census and survey data collection, because all of a sudden we have a control or a, a way in which we can get some sort of baseline as to the number of households we should be expecting, whereas in the past you kind of relied on the field work working, and from certainly from my experience, unfortunately that's you know one of the most complicated parts of the process, and and often things go missing or or someone hasn't understood exactly what they were meant to do or, or or whatever, and we have no way of really quantifying what did and didn't work, and so that's the, that's the first part where. The, uh, the spatial technology is, is really coming. Now if we go to the end of that process, of course we, I mean, we use a, a various technologies to assist in the data capture, but they're not spatial and uh, not really spatial. And so if we go down into the, the stage where we've actually processed our data, we've cleaned it up, we've created some, some tables you know, that are looking at school enrolments and are looking at employment details and things like this. Most of us would struggle to, to look at a, a table of numbers and make a lot of sense of it. And if I told you that you know, 80% of the population in Vanuatu was attending a primary school, you'd say, OK, that's great. But I know that 80% probably means that there are areas where it's much, much lower and areas that are much, much higher. And it averages out to be 80%. And so what then becomes very interesting, and, and actually the reason that I was employed at SPC 11 years ago, was to put together a very sort of simple system that enabled us to, and this is where the, the term GIS actually comes in, a geographic information system, that enables us to map our data by districts, by, by re, uh, and that can be at varying, varying scales of geography, from the census collection district, which is a few hundred households, up through districts, possibly regions or provinces, and even to a national level. And so, you know, if... if if you tell me that 80% of, of you know, primary school age uh, children are attending school, I can then look at that exact same data at a provincial level and determine that you know, province one actually is slightly above that average and they're at 85%. But then within that province, particularly when you then look at things like satellite imagery as a backdrop and you look at road networks and access and, and things like this, you'll see that that's, I mean, that's a large problem in the Pacific is, is access. And there'll be a village where not many children are going to school at all, and the village next door, many children are going to school. And then we can sort of start exploring in a little bit more depth why that's the case. And if it means that a child has to walk 10 kilometres to get to school and, and 
maybe the threshold for normal children, you know, as a, as a normal sort of walking distance where they're prepared to go to school is, is five kilometres, all of a sudden we can say, you know, maybe we need to look at adding in some transport services or, or maybe they need to consider adding in another school. And so that's where, you know, being able to visualise this data and use it for evidence-based decision-making kind of is where it all comes alive, where, you know, the, the whole reason that we're collecting a census or, or running a census in the first place becomes apparent because all of a sudden we can pull out these patterns we can feed it to those involved in planning we can feed it to donors and say look you know in this area we're actually short of schools or we're short of a school bus and and then we can make some changes for the better there's a there are, there's a number of pieces in, in in that explanation that i'd like to explore there's a number of different threads but the, the last one that you were just talking about there is one I'd like to pursue first. Do you ever, in your position, find yourself uh, getting caught up in the potential politics of, of the census? And I'm, I'm sure you're intimately familiar with censuses can be powerful political tools. They can be, you know, and, and they're highly guarded or closely guarded and, and whatnot. Is, it, is that ever a frustration you find in your job about certain questions being asked or certain questions not being asked or, or the way the data is used? Does that ever cross your desk? All the time. There are, sometimes this is country specific. Uh, certain countries are not willing to share the data with with the general population. Sometimes it's it's simply because you know a, a census office, for example, is, is is used to selling their data and that's how it works, and they're not willing to to even though this data is being collected for public good, and they've got uh, you know various budgets that need to be to be met, and so they they sell their data and and so people aren't using it. And so this sort of thing is, is certainly a challenge for us. If we go one step up, though, and we look at, at um, ministers and, and, and even up to prime ministers, we do find that we get pressure to put, or the officers get pressure to put in certain questions, certainly when we're coming up to elections. And this in itself complicates things enormously because we find that a census can be very, very skewed because of electoral roles that need to be constructed uh, and trying to, to bump up numbers so that uh, they have a little bit more influence when it comes to an election and, and when it comes to, to funding allocation because often the, cen- the census results or, or population counts are used to provide funds to, to communities and that can get very, very messy in itself. As far as the questions being asked, sometimes it can be, it can come down to, to the general population not liking a question um, we had one like that here in New Caledonia a few years ago where there was a, a question on basically a race-related question and it was considered to be a little bit too sensitive and actually ended up being pulled out by um, the French president at the time, which might have been Chirac, I think, um, because it was seen as being too much of an issue and actually didn't want to release the data with that question there because uh, uh, people weren't comfortable with the way in which it was asked. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do face this uh, a lot of the time and, and I guess we've got to try and deal with it as best as we can. Mm. At the end of the day, we, we try and convey to the, well, to, to the, the, the countries, particularly those in government that are, have the control to, 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 for example, release the data, that there is a reason that a census is being run every five or ten years and there is a reason that certain questions are being asked because it allows us to, to better understand the population and to better plan for future developments and to, and to address possibly holes and holes in the development, whether it be in education or health funding or whatever else. And we have found that, you know, in most cases we manage to get around. Throw into that sometimes, unfortunately, a little bit of corruption 
awesome internal conflicts like we've had recently in places like Papua New Guinea or Solomon Islands and that in itself can you know blow things completely out of proportion and unfortunately sometimes it's completely out of our control and we just have to either let slide or or in some cases even if we consider that our our work is is not going to be beneficial to a country because there are too many constraints in place and we just have to say look you know we're we're not able to assist at this time and and they have to look after themselves unfortunately Hmm. let me ask you something that may probably what i hope is a little more lighthearted. when you were describing some of the data collection procedures and um earlier on you were talking about uh, one incident where you know a boat sunk with a bunch of enumerator forms and you were able to then go back and reconstruct that data talk me through what are some of the unique constraints working in not only that sort of breadth but just you know working in places where you, you sort of have to work in islands everywhere what what are the what do you what are the constraints you would deal with every day we we actually have there are, there are 22 member countries in the region uh, i mean we we we're dealing with 22 countries in the region from ranging from Pitcairn Island, which is less than 100 people, to Papua New Guinea, which is more than 7 million. So there's a, Some country, of these countries there's are, a country with 100 people in it? With less than, I think it's currently 58. Holy smokes, that's amazing. These are survivors from the bounty. So we, 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 we have countries that are, that are vastly different, not only culturally. And so you have, you know, some countries where the basically the average height above sea level for some of the atoll countries like uh, Kiribati is a couple of metres. Uh, and they're often countries that are in the news when it comes to climate change and, and king tides and, and sea level rising and all that sort of stuff. You have other countries, I mean, Papua New Guinea, for example, where, you know, it's, it's very mountainous and, and you have issues with access, enormous issues with access and, and tribal conflicts and, and I mean, in, in Papua New Guinea we've got seven or eight hundred different languages and so, you know, even with, between villages they don't talk to each other. Um, and so you try and go in there and, and ask them census questionnaires and uh, questions and you really struggle. And so we have a, a whole range of different challenges. Access is, is one of the big ones. You know, there, there, are, there are some countries, for example, in New Caledonia, where we're talking about one in island and, and several smaller islands that you can get to with a, a plane and then drive around with a car. So access is not too difficult. There are other islands where you have to wait a month to get a boat to go to one of the outer islands. And that boat, boat may not arrive or it may, may not come back and be delayed. And so sometimes it means that, you know, people in the outer islands are not being enumerated until a month later. Uh, and you ask people questions a month after a, uh, a date is, is fixed, which is what we do for a census night, is we fix a date and say we want to know a snapshot of everything that happened on this day. So you then go to these people a month later and ask them what they were doing and so forth, and it can get a little bit more tricky. We then also obviously have, have issues, um, you know, with just trying to deal with things in the field. You know, once we're out there, once we're in the field, we've got to get fuel um, and supplies that may be difficult to come by so they can be shipped in by boat in some cases you can find them locally and you've then got to round up outboard motors and little boats to get people around so that's in itself also a transport issue we've also got to worry then about getting forms back in keeping them protected from the weather um if you have you know we're we're dealing with the tropics in many of these countries and you have uh, monsoonal type rains you really struggle to to pull a census questionnaire out and fill it in without ink running and the paper falling apart and and so forth so that sort of thing is a real challenge Uh, sometimes it means that 
work has to be repeated to try and minimise it as much as possible. Sometimes it means, you know, coming up with interesting ways of trying to, to do work or chartering a boat or, or something like this, you know. We've, we've often got to be very, very flexible and, and even when we plan for all the possibilities of what could go wrong, uh, often we're surprised with the things that we didn't think about when it comes to actually getting out there and doing the job. Mm. I'd like to I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit right now and, and talk more about you um, as opposed to the specific work that you do. You've already mentioned a couple of times you've been working for SPC for 11 years. You came from Australia. How'd you get there? What you know? What was the moment? Uh, did you just pick up and you know what, raise your hand? Uh, uh, obviously, you probably answered some sort of ad. But how'd you end up in New Caledonia? One of those people that tends to often have things fall into my lap, which is is wonderful. Prior to I came to prior to coming to SPC, I was working for Curtin University in in Western Australia as a research assistant, um, and I actually just happened to see a, a job ad for a three month contract here up on a pinup board in in you know in the office. And um, at that time, I was actually planning to resign and go travelling through Europe. And I applied for the job, and I didn't know anything about New Caledonia. I didn't even know where it was. So I kind of, you know, looked on a map and tried to figure out what part of the world I'd possibly be going to, uh, not knowing at all, actually, that it was on the, just off the east coast of Australia. And um, being a three-month contract, I wasn't too worried whether or not I got the job. I threw together a CV in, you know, 30 seconds, which is about as fast as I've ever done for a job application, uh, applied and, and thought nothing else of it. Um, I interview and, and likewise, I kind of, it's one of those interviews where because you're not really fussed at the outcome, you actually end up doing a brilliant interview. And um, before I knew it, within you know, two weeks, I was offered a position and had to then look at the map again and figure out exactly what I got myself into and took a three-month contract, which was then extended over and over and over until I, I finally ended up with, you know, I guess real contracts, the way that they work here at SBC, which are three years in, in length. And I've been here ever since. Well, take, take me back through that. Two, two questions, sort of. So uh, I love that you just sort of, you know, you saw a gig and you thought this sounds like a, an interesting opportunity. You were going to travel anyway. Your, was it your intention to get into the technical assistance slash international development world? Were you already going in that direction or was that new? Not at all. Um, I really had no idea at all how that worked. And, yeah, I mean, to me, international aid was the UN and, and you know, this is the sort of the picture that we often have when we see what's going on around the world. So, I mean, not at all. You know, at that point, it hadn't been long since I'd actually finished university and I was doing some research work uh, at that point actually in public health uh, in Western Australia and, and looking at technology and, and so forth and how we could use GIS to, to do some data mining in diabetes incidents in the Aboriginal population. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would have ever ended up in, in development work if I hadn't have taken that job. But that's where I'm at now, and I, I have a, now an, an amazing, you know, 11 years of experience in the area, and I've, I've been, you know, introduced to all the, the wonderful areas that so many people are working in when it comes to development in the region. What's the... Tell me, take me through, how long did you survive on a, on three-month to three-month contract? Was it two years, three years, more? Normally here at SBC we have three-year contracts. Nothing's permanent, partially because uh, the idea is that we make ourselves redundant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, I, if I'm sharing my capacity with people in the region that I'm working with and any of them get to the same level that I'm at or the level that's required to do my job, I really shouldn't be here. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that SBC does have sort of limited contracts. It also means that, you know, we get some turnover and it keeps things fresh. Uh, and because we're, you know, we're, we basically have a board that's represented by each of the countries, 
uh, by their foreign affairs. They like to see, you know, that things are, are, are staying fresh and, and, and new in terms of technology and, and development ideas and so forth. As far as I'm concerned, and in fact, as far as many of our projects are concerned, we can be limited sometimes to to funds and, and when funds arrive and, and various stages of funding and, and, and when we can draw down on the funds or various objectives that need to be met. And, and that in itself can place constraints on contracts. You know, when I first started, this was a bit of a, a trial project for four countries to see how we could better produce information or create very, very useful information out of data and not just present tables to people. And so, you know, I came in where they basically said, you know, we want to have sort of three to six months where we sort of play with this idea and see what happens. Then after that, we had bits and pieces that came through from various donors that just extended that idea a bit further. And sometimes we're also then limited by the way in which internal mechanisms worked in the organisation and movement of my own colleagues and so forth. And so sometimes it would be a, a month contract and a three-month contract and an eight-month contract, and they progressively really got longer and longer until we could secure some decent funding and get some really good support from, from Australian aid, and they could see a real benefit in, in this sort of project and improving the way in which we, we present data in the region. Uh, and they committed to a much longer-term project so we could have some, some sort of permanent staff as much as we can be permanent uh, within the organisation so that we can get this going over multiple countries in multiple years. Hmm. And during that time, were you always heads heads down on the work that you were doing or did you actually, did you have to participate in fundraising as well or is that taken care of as a different part of the organization? I am, um, most of the time I'm not directly involved in, in fundraising. Um, my, my manager and the director of, of our division he spends a lot of time in, in that area and he has very good relationships with the donor countries and, and funding bodies and, and so forth. And I, I, that's his role to a large degree. And, and I mean, what we do find is that the donors sometimes will fund specific projects. Sometimes they'll fund, you know, like our division and say, we, we really like the whole census idea of, of running censuses in the region. They'll fund multiple positions, they'll fund multiple projects and say, just do it. That makes it really easy because it also gives us a little bit more sort of flexibility as to how we're going to, to distribute those funds internally and, and address the priorities of the countries and, and, and so forth and our work objectives. And so, yeah, I, I, at the same time, you know, when I'm working directly with countries, we often uncover areas where they would like assistance. And sometimes that can be then a matter of, of linking up with donors that are based in the countries, which they certainly are in some of the larger countries, and saying, you know, we need a bit of extra money to run this activity because of A, B and C. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly, in that regard, providing assistance towards funding as, as much as I can and, and getting people talking and, and so forth. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember what the other part of your question was, sorry. Well, no, the, 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 you've, you've really answered it. What Paint a little more color there for me. You said your director or the division manager, um, the division head, is, is responsible for that. Because you're the secretariat of the Pacific Community, does your division write formal proposals to the funders, or is there a, you know, is there is there a, a even more sort of intimate relationship for funding through for funding mechanisms, or are you just you're not you're sort of arm's length away from that? You wouldn't know. I mean, I, we're required to certainly my directors required to have a fairly close working relationship with the funding bodies, uh, and we tend to find that there will be people, for example, within Aussie that are allocated to the Pacific region. Um, and so we're part of their portfolio. 
uh, and we obviously then work very closely with them when we've got regional meetings or when we have our, our sort of um, our mini conference for, for our division, which we have every couple of years, to report back to the countries, particularly the statistics officers that we work with, and tell them what we've been doing and, and get their feedback and, and what we see as being some pretty good future directions for, for the area. The donors get involved and they come along and, and, and they can see what countries are asking for and they can see any issues that may arise. And so that often sort of starts the ball rolling and then, you know, they'll sit down and say, look, you know, we're going to go back to to the Australian government and ask for a bit of money to run this activity. We put together a budget, which often I'll be involved in because there are certain aspects of the work that we're doing that, you know, I, I, I sort of know best. And then if a budget gets approved and funding comes along, then great. If not, we go to other other funding bodies, and sometimes that means having to to uh, sort of introduce what we're doing and, and sort of seek funding elsewhere. And we get, you know, for example, now the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is involved in some of the work we're doing. You know, it's not only necessarily, you know, countries that are in close proximity in the region. But certainly, it's, it's a very interesting process, and although I'm not directly involved in it, um, you know, I do have to provide assistance where possible. So, you've been doing this for 11 years. You 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 know, you started out with sometimes month-to-month contracts, um, but you're, you showed up 11 years later uh, not having intended to go into the international development field at all. How do you keep it interesting? Is, is this still challenging? Are you, is this sort of, eh, I've done it, or, or are you still finding challenges every day, or, or what do you do to, to stay excited? The nice thing about what I do is that I'm, I'm dealing with multiple countries. And so even what would normally be a fairly rudimentary task, if you're doing it over and over, as soon as I'm doing this with another country, you know, for example, I'm, I'm involved in the whole census process for the country, and um, you know, it's very, very time-consuming, and it can be quite stressful, certainly when it comes up to, to sort of you know, census day, and, and we're in country, and, and we're working long hours. And if I was to do that in the same country you know, every six months, I think I'd go crazy. I then rock up in another country and I meet some new people and I have to deal with new cultures and I might even learn a little bit of the, the language and, and things like this, and that keeps it really, really interesting. And, you know, when I do have my, my rare days off in country, it's always nice to, you know, to, to visit the countryside or I'm quite passionate about scuba diving and so I can get into the water and all of this to me, you know, that, that makes it, keeps it really interesting and it's such a beautiful region. Um, there's still so many places that I haven't seen and, and you know, it sort of—I guess—it keeps you keeps you motivated, keeps you excited, and, and at the same time, the industry that I'm involved in, as far as you know, the GIS technology is concerned, is is evolving every day and, and relatively quickly. And for example, when I started, we developed this this population GIS application, which was desktop computer based because internet connections in the region were too slow. And now we're at a position where I'm I'm working on a newer version of that that's online because we all of a sudden have the technology that allows us to do that, which then also means that instead of having 10 users in a country or 20 users in a country, we now have X number of users in country, plus the number of potential users outside the country are enormous because we can have donors accessing the data and, and looking at maps. We can have researchers around the world that, you know, all of a sudden have specific data that they can play with, and, and they come back with some you know, interesting case studies or research proposals that we can also get involved in and so you know the, the the breadth of what i potentially can be doing now is actually expanding as as these advances are made I, I, we've only got a few minutes left here i've got a couple more questions what's 
sort of your ideal day, professionally speaking? I do find sometimes being in the office here, you know, you're sort of banging your head against the screen or the wall, you know, trying to clean up some data or, or something like this, and, and, and that can be a little bit frustrating. And however, when, when I'm in country and I'm, I'm working with counterparts, and I, you know, particularly when I'm working with counterparts that I've seen growing up from, from being a junior that's... that's possibly come out of university or, or just even finished high school or not even that and I've, I've worked with them over, over time and, and trained them up and, and now a, you know, a bit of a sidekick and we're, and we're running a census together or something like this and I find that you know, very enriching for me uh, and, and certainly makes the work that I do very worthwhile to see that sort of thing happening and so you know, I, I can see myself being in a country like the Solomon Islands where I have a, a very close colleague and, and friend who is one of those sort of uh, examples and has, has come up from a, a, a junior without much experience to now being, I mean, you just heard the other day, heading off to university for the first time to do a degree in Fiji. That's and that awesome. to me is, is, is wonderful. Um, and so, you know, a day working with someone like him in country now where we can sort of, you know, joke about where he's come from and, and how little he knew five years ago to now being in a position where he runs surveys and as uh, you know, is, is, is great and we, have a, we, have, we enjoy working together and, and so days like that are, are very enriching and you know, I, I, I do involve that, I do enjoy that kind of interaction with, with people in, in, the, in the Pacific Island countries and at the same time I'm learning about their cultures and, and so forth which is, is very, very exciting Nice the, the, You know, everybody has stories in this business um, you've been there for 11 years I can only imagine the, the breadth of stories you have about it airplanes and boats and, and different languages what's what's the one story that right now pops into your mind you know if, if you and i were to go down and sit and have a drink that you know you want it you'd love to tell somebody what's the what's the best story you have off the on the tip of your tongue there are many of them um but one of the one of the the i guess the, the sort of the ongoing stories that i have that i often like to talk about when it comes to my experience in the region and what has i guess made it all worthwhile for me it comes from a country called Kiribati, which is uh, um, the capital of Kiribati is, is Tarawa, and that's like one degree north of the equator, and it's another one of these uh, tiny atoll countries. And in fact, they're an interesting country because they're spread out so over something like 4,000 square kilometres of ocean. Oh, sorry, from east, from west to east, it's something like 4,000 kilometres of ocean, something like 5 million uh, square kilometres of ocean that they're actually based in. And it's a tiny little country as far as land mass is concerned. And the people there are, have, have got their various problems and issues, which is why we're obviously there assisting them. But when I, the first time that I, I went there, um, one of the, my counterparts there, who's actually now become a colleague with me here at SPC, said, look, you really should get out and, and go to the, the village, go and stay with my family and have an, a local experience. And so she sent me across the lagoon in, in Tarawa, from South Tarawa to North Tarawa. And this is a, you know, about a one-and-a-half-hour trip in a little canoe, sort of a, a canoe little, you know, 15 horsepower motor on the back, so it's an, an outrigger canoe, um, across the a lagoon, and, you know, this canoe's taking on water because it's got holes all over it, so we're constantly baiting out. We rock up at the other side, and I have this family that greets me that I've never met before, and I spent this amazing time with them where, you know, the, the, the husband was involved in politics and was a school teacher and is now retired. Um, and he would be in his 50s, and his wife was also a school teacher. And unfortunately, she's only passed away recently. But they've 
got a, a family of, of many, many kids uh, and often adopted kids and, and kids from, you know, friends that are in, in other parts of the country that obviously can't afford to look after them or they, they can't get them to school and things like this. So it's one of those amazing families. And and I go back there now every time I'm in the country and, and have this amazing opportunity to sit down and, and discuss the meaning of life with this this elderly gentleman, who's relatively relatively simple and you know, often hears things on the radio and all of a sudden says, you know, I have to go on the diet because it's not good. All the things that I eat, and he starts eating nothing but coconuts and things that means he's on a diet. And, um, you know, I've got to kind of explain what that <laughs> means. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's really nice, you know, to be out in a place like that. And, and, you know, as much as being in one of these Pacific Island countries, you're fairly sort of isolated in the middle of nowhere to then go from the capital out into the rural area is, is also very very different and also shows you what village life is like uh, it's lovely and you know so this this family i have a very close bond with now and and, uh, and you know, that's one of the really really nice experiences that i've had since i've been with that's fantastic phil last question you stumbled into this business 11 years ago but you've had a great time of it is there any words of wisdom or advice that you'd pass to someone either maybe coming out of university or who wants to break into the aid or development space that you think is just essential for them to have? I mean, the, the aid industry is, is, is enormous um, and, and covers so many different areas. And certainly when it comes to, to skills and expertise that are required, there's obviously you know, various subject matter specialists that can be working in a whole range of different areas. But having said that, you know, it does take a certain type of person to be working in aid. Um, because it, you know, it can it can be frustrating from time to time. You know, seeing things not necessarily advancing, or or working with people in country that you train up and they leave, and then all of a sudden you're back to square one and you have to do it again. Um, and at the same time, also sometimes being in areas where you know safety can be compromised and, and even health can be compromised, and you know you're not always staying in a five star hotel and eating in a five star restaurant. And so, you know, the people I see kind of working best in this industry are those that often actually have started off as even a volunteer in one of these countries in the middle of nowhere. I tend to find that people that come in that are used to wearing a suit and tie and, and, and come into an aid organisation, often at the top, that sort of, you know, give the, give the orders. They don't really have a clue how things operate on the ground. Um, and so, for example, you know, Peace Corps, people involved in Peace Corps, I can see people like this as being sort of ideal later on for being going back to development as a as a as an expert as a specialist to provide assistance because they really they've got their hands dirty to start off with and yeah i mean that's certainly from from my point of view what i've kind of noticed um and where i i see colleagues of mine sometimes you know turning straight back around and going back to where they, they started because it's just not for them uh and at the same time there are others that that, that, that thrive because they they love working in the industry and they're, and they are willing to, you know, to, to go through a few of these different kind of conditions and experiences to get what has to be done and, and, and they're the people that hang around for many, many years. Phil, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Not a problem, Steve. Pleasure. You've been listening to Terms of Reference, a weekly podcast from aidpreneur.com. Find us on iTunes or at www.aidpreneur.com. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.